Wanted to mention that this is a significant date in history on this day, June 17th. 2015, unfortunately, a very tragic day. It's where nine people at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, died. Nine people in a mass shooting. It was very tragic because the shooter was actually welcomed in by the people there, and he fired 70 rounds and and so many uh, tragic uh, stories and uh, incredible stories as well about the victims and sort of how incredible the congregation was as well in terms of forgiveness after that. Mention that because uh, that did happen five years ago, but also um, it's appropriate in the sense that it ties in with our next guest as well. Um, he is a Christian, he's a historian, he's a writer, and a speaker. And in fact, his very first book, which he's joining us to talk about, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism, it's actually, I've been told, some good news. It's just made the New York Times bestseller list. Hi, Jamar, how are you? I am feeling a mix of emotions right now. Mm. Obviously ecstatic that my book has made the New York Times bestseller list. That's news I got just a couple of hours before um, this show. Uh, So that's great news. But at the same time, knowing what it took to get there and what sparked this renewed interest in the topic of racial justice and the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and and on and on. Uh, So that's a sobering aspect of it as well. So it's a mix of emotion. I am sure. um, But definitely congratulations for this being your very first book. Uh, That is an accomplishment. And I think um, you're you're doing the work that you set out to do in terms of getting it into more hands and also educating and also hopefully causing a lot of self-reflection, too. You know, I've been getting a lot of messages from readers, mainly white Christians, who are talking, you know, giving testimonies basically about how learning this history has really challenged them, has opened their eyes to some things, and has set them on a course to want to be part of the solution when it comes to fighting racism and moving toward racial justice. So, I'm, you know, it's an answer to my prayers, and I'm, I'm very pleased that this kind of information is um getting out there, and it's having an impact for for the folks who want to engage. Well, we're talking to author Jamar Tisby. I'm going to spell the last name for you, T-I-S-B-Y, and his website is just as it sounds, Jamar, J-E-M-A-R, Tisby.com. And, you know, this is a fascinating topic, and I think one that I really hadn't thought that in-depth into in the sense that you really are asking a lot of questions about churches and the role that churches play uh, in communities of faith, perpetuating and dismantling racism in its various forms. I I mean, I don't think I've ever really come across this uh, topic. You know, I I think something that's that's missing in a lot of conversations about racial justice or the the word that's being used a lot now is anti-racism is the religious aspect. And that's important for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, Christians, namely white Christians, have been so much a part of the problem historically that I believe that they're going to have to be engaged in being part of the solution in the present day. And then on the other side, uh, religion, specifically Christianity, has been such a, a massive part 
of uh, the black community and the black Christian community. And um, black Christians have catalyzed their faith to work for justice and to work for liberation. And so you can't really understand um, our racial moment Mm -hmm. um, and our racial context unless we're looking at religion and particularly in in my study, uh, looking at Christianity. A lot more coming up with author Jamar Tisby. He just, uh, his book, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism, just hit the New York Times bestseller list. And these are some of the questions that he asks, you know, is the teaching of churches helping or hindering uh, sensitivities concerning race and uh, whether churches are endorsing overt racism and uh also how church leaders understand race and what they're teaching their church members about it. Well, we're going to delve into this. 312-981-7200 would love for you to join the conversation as well. So a lot more coming up with Jamar. Two nine eight one seventy two hundred. If you want to join the conversation, here for you is author, and I'm looking at uh, Jamar Tisby's uh, bio, by the way, on his website, and it says uh, Christian historian, writer, and speaker. That's how he describes himself in his very first book, The Color of Compromise: The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism, has just hit the New York Times bestseller list. And Jamar, we need to say that you have a lot of roots here in Chicago. I do. I do. I grew up in Waukegan, uh, was born and raised there, and then went to undergrad at the University of Notre Dame, so not too far away. Uh, Parents and siblings still live up in the Chicagoland area, so it is home. That's fantastic. And did you spend some time in Wheaton College, too? I did not. Uh, I have a lot of connections at Wheaton, but I went to seminary. Well, I joined Teach for America after uh, graduating from Notre Dame, and they placed me in the Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side, mm-hmm. where I've lived pretty much ever since, and spent some time in, in Jackson, Mississippi, and now I'm getting a PhD in history at the University of Mississippi. Okay, and, and that's where you reside as well? Yeah, I, I still reside in uh, uh, the Delta on the Arkansas mm-hmm. side and commute back and forth to the university. Well, it's uh, fantastic to be able to kind of welcome you, welcome you home in a way. So thanks so much yes. for being with us. So, okay. Surreal. So tell us what you hope to accomplish with your book. So one of the things I want to always make clear is the idea of complicity and compromise, because a lot of people will look at those words and say, well, that's not strong enough. Um, and in a sense, they're right, because there are Christians who weren't simply complicit, but they were very active in forming systems and hierarchies based on race, in propping up white supremacy. Um, and, and those are the folks who, you know, put on white robes and hoods. They're the ones who held the ropes at uh, lynching, lynchings. Um, and, and that's true. But what I wanted to get at in this book was the idea that if that's all you think of in terms of, of racism, then it's really easy to absolve yourself and say, well, I didn't do any of those things, so I'm not racist. But the reality is, um, you know, the most egregious acts of racism happen within a context of compromise with with people who are looking the other way or remaining silent or apathetic in the face of injustice. And that's a bigger group of people. And that's what I was trying to get at Mm. with this idea of complicity. 
Well, um, I think that's a, a, an explanation that uh, is warranted in the sense that I think many people feel, my goodness, that doesn't happen in my church. Um, so what are some of the questions mm. that one should ask themselves about their church and, and what church is like for them? Right. Well, a, a couple of things. I begin the book with the story of the 16th Street um, Bir- Birmingham church bombing in which four uh, little girls were killed in an act of racial terrorism. And I start that way um, because of the event itself, but also immediately after there was a white lawyer named Charles Morgan Jr. who was talking to the all-white Young Men's Business Club in Birmingham, Alabama later that same week. And then uh, his speech was very powerful because he asked that group of people, he said, who did it? Who threw that bomb? And he said, the answer should be, we all did it. And what he was getting at was the idea that um, every time an act of of racial terror had occurred to the extent that that white people, white Christians, didn't stand up and um, walk alongside black people as they were fighting for their civil rights, as, 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 as we are fighting for our lives to matter, then there's an, ele- there's an element of culpability in that. And so I think for, for modern churches, we need, to, we need to do that as well. I, I truly believe um, that right now we're in the next wave of the civil rights movement, and a lot of people say, well, you know, if I was around in the 50s and 60s, I would have marched with King, I would have boycotted, I would have protested. Well, don't say you would have done that stuff back then if you're not doing it now. And so churches need to ask, uh, and Christians more broadly need to ask, what am I doing proactively, um, not just to be not racist, but to be actively anti-racist? And you also say um, as well that it needs the question of... Um, is the discussion even being brought up, whether it's in Bible study or in um, a sermon, right? For sure. Um, there's been a long history in the church, um, particularly white Christian churches, of not talking about issues of race and not talking about racial justice. But for for one example, back in the 1790s, um, a very large Baptist uh, convention, a Baptist denomination, actually passed uh, a resolution that said you couldn't be a slaveholder and be a Christian in good standing. Well, that was at the annual meeting, and then when the resolution went back to the local churches, there was such an uproar and such a protest at the congregational level that the denomination changed its stance, and it said, you know what, Uh, slavery is a civil issue, it's a political issue, and we can't talk about it in the church or from the pulpit. And that's just one example, emblematic of uh, generations of white Christians who said that issues of racial justice fall beyond the purview of what should be addressed in church. And of course, black Christians and other marginalized uh, people saw it quite differently because these were literally matters of life and death that uh, their faith had, had volumes to say about it. And so even in the present day, although I think it's changing a little bit, but in the present day, there, there's still a reticence in, the, um, in some areas of the U.S. church to even approach issues of race as if they aren't part, of, um, part and parcel of, of what the faith addresses. I guess you're saying that because it's categorized as under political, and a lot of times churches try not to be political. 
Yeah, but they're very selective about it. So, um, you know, churches have no problem being political when it comes to issues of abortion or Roe v. Wade. They had no problems of being political when it came to Bibles in schools or prayer in schools. So it's very selective, and it tends to be that any issues around race are you know, suspiciously political and not part of the church, but other issues, sort of culture war issues, well, that's fair game. And sometimes you say that um, if the discussion is being had, um, obviously a problem, as you just mentioned, is sort of the discussion not being approached at all or or discussed at all. But then also if it is had um, in church, then often it's not done in a helpful way. Yes. You know, um, the the journalist Jonathan Merritt had a quote that I keep coming back to just a day or two ago, and he said, most white Christians are two or three good questions away from revealing a white supremacist view. I think that's just so spot on in the sense that there's a very shallow understanding of race and racism. So a lot of Christians will say, well, all the ground is level at the foot of the cross, meaning, you know, we're all equally in need of salvation and and the gospel and things like that. Well, that's something that I think Martin Luther King would call uh, pious irrelevancies and and vain trivialities, right? Like it, Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't actually have weight or substance or specificity to change the status quo. And so if that's the way churches are addressing race, to say, oh, everybody's equal, but not actually talking about the racial wealth gap, mass incarceration, white flight schools, um, the, the flight to suburbs and residential segregation, and all, these, all of these ways racism actually manifests, then it's, I think, maybe even doing more harm than good. Also, you mentioned something that uh, is often said is sort of, I don't, we hope for a world where we don't see color, or we can't see color, or I don't see color. Um, How is that, describe how that is unhelpful. Right, so that would essentially be the colorblind approach to, to racial justice or racial reconciliation. And I think that's a very unhelpful way of looking at it. I mean, blindness generally is not something that people aspire to. uh, But in the um, context of race, what it does is erases so much of the history and the culture. And speaking particularly of black people, um, Imani Perry wrote a great article in The Atlantic saying, you know, racism is the problem. My blackness is not the problem. And so I don't want people to look at me and see me as race-less. Or, or without a race, I want you to see me in, in the fullness of my embodied self, which would include my skin color. And we know that, that there's a culture that goes along with it. There's a history that goes along with being a, a racial or ethnic minority of, of any type. And that needs to be part of the congreg- conversation. I think a lot of people mistake unity for, for uniformity for unity. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the colorblind approach says, well, we want everyone to be the same. But the better approach is to say we need to be unified even in the midst of our differences. So if you are religious, um, and I think because you are Christian, you're speaking to a lot of Christ- fellow Christians um, in the book, uh, what should be asked of uh, religious leaders and church leaders? Well, now is the time to to speak up. Uh, you know, at, at a wedding, sometimes they'll say, speak now or forever, hold your peace. Now is the, that moment. I don't, I mean, this, is, this has been a more sustained 
uh, uh, wave of uprising and protest than, than I've ever seen, um, certainly in recent years. And, I mean, my question is, if you don't, if you're a Christian leader and you don't speak up forcefully now for racial justice, when will you and what will it take? And it's not just speaking up, of course. It's not just sending out a tweet or, or writing a particular statement. It's asking yourself, how will you commit to racial justice in the long run? And looking at things like your board of trustees, your board of elders, and what is the racial and ethnic composition there? Where does your budget what does your budget tell you about your commitment to racial justice? Are you supporting black-led ministries and organizations? Um, are you uh, accepting leadership and learning from black people and other people of color, whether on your bookshelves or um, in, in a broader sense, you know, not hosting the conversation on race, but platforming the people who have been doing this work and taking a, a position of following and humility in, in this moment. Those are the kinds of things that I think not just churches, but, um, you know, the nation in general needs to be considering and thinking about. Well, we appreciate you so much taking the time uh, out to talk with us. Uh, Jamar Tisby, author of The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. We love that you have local Chicago roots. And uh, also, congratulations on making the New York Times bestseller list. We hope you come back and join us again real soon. Thank you. I would love to. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you, Jamar.